Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why we're prepared to ride for Val Kilmer as Batman. Not far, you understand, but we'll ride for him nonetheless. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, a man with a secret plan to stop Kevin Durant, but who's playing it close to the vest for the time being. Come out and face him, Durant! Hey, Frank, and yes, I will not be disclosing that, uh, otherwise Jalen Rose will have nothing to talk about tonight. As always, we'd like to thank you and all of our uh, other listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everyone to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in Paris. Ratings really do matter, so please take a few seconds, give us a couple stars. If you have a little bit longer, please write a little bit of review. We always read them. Um, Also, we're thinking about having some Taking Ship t-shirts and potentially other swag made up. Uh, If you're interested, please let us know on Twitter. We're joined today uh, by our good friend, Josh Levin. Uh, He's a fellow member of the Truman National Security Project, a strategist with more than 16 years of experience working on campaigns and advocacy efforts across the country. He's managed five congressional campaigns, uh, the successful ballot initiative that made marriage equality a reality in Maryland, and more. Uh, He spent the last weeks of the 2016 campaign in Ohio helping run GOTV operations for the DNC and Clinton campaign, and is currently consulting for community groups and nonprofits under his square strategies banner and we'll be talking to josh a little later in the meantime we want to start today with an update on the war on the war on corruption this week the venal pack candidate spotlight shines very brightly on republican congressman devin nunes the dairy farmer turned head of intelligence committee turned stooge for the white house You might remember him as the guy who thought he was Jason Bourne uh, because he got fed some classified information by some Trump lackeys, uh, which led him to having to to recuse himself from leading the House Intelligence Committee's investigation on Russian meddling with the election. So he had a a nice little kind of spy thriller fantasy camp, and then he had to recuse himself. Well, our intrepid hero, apparently stricken by the same memory loss as Jason Bourne, is back at it. Despite recusing himself— from the investigation, this week he issued three subpoenas to law enforcement and intelligence agencies seeking information about the so-called unmasking of associates of President Trump, whose identities were in- incidentally caught up in surveillance of foreign operatives. This is uh, all has to do with the FISA warrants. Everybody's heard a lot about this stuff. The subpoenas resurfaced Mr. Trump's dubious claims. Uh, dubious is a kind way of saying made-up, figmentary, uh, and/or lies about Obama-era surveillance at the time when Mr. Trump is currently facing pretty serious questions about whether he tried to interfere in the FBI investigation. Uh, all roads point to yes. Yes. And it's it's pretty – we've been shaking this magic eight ball uh, just, just basically nonstop for the last few months about the Russia investigation, and it keeps coming up. Uh, signs point to yes. Uh, absolutely, and all the other all the other confirmations. Uh, so it, it's hard not turning back to the question of uh, Nunes. It's hard not to admire a guy who, you know, while the president is openly sharing classified intelligence with Russians in the Oval Office or the Filipinos over the phone, or the Filipinos over the phone, or just I mean, uh, you know, just any anyone he's talking to in any given moment. Um, and everyone around the president, including uh, precious, precious Jared, is under some degree of investigation or scrutiny for connections with Russians. Uh, Comey himself is, a, is fixing to testify. People are openly wondering if Jeff Sessions perjured himself in his confirmation hearings to be AG. All of this is happening. And yet here's, you know, here's Nunes. He's still doing the hard, the necessary, the belt and braces work, the lunch pail work of just tossing out uh, red herrings by the bucket load. I mean, that's a really... That's just a, a gritty, grinding performance by Devin Nunes that I can't help but admire. <laughs> and for his fortitude and suckling to the Trump administration teat, Devin Nunes is this week's Venal Pack superstar. Congratulations, Devin. Yeah, you can donate to his opponent at, well, you know, or you can just throw the money in the air. It'll have about the same effect on that race. Uh, we want to quickly just turn to the Paris Agreement, because that's the big story this week, obviously. Uh, Paris Agreement, 194 nations, everybody except Syria and Nicaragua, uh, signed on to cut uh, emission, global emissions uh, over the next uh, several decades. Uh, it was uh, arguably would have big impact or less, less big impact, but the bottom line, it was a huge piece of diplomacy. And um, if nothing else, it 
pointed all corporations and all countries in the direction that climate change is real and we have to do something about it to save the planet. Um, when people talk about sort of big achievements in foreign policy in the last eight years, like big sort of triumphs, actually longer than the last eight years, big triumphs of kind of multilateral diplomacy. Uh, the Iran deal would be one, although obviously there are its detractors. But this, the Paris Agreement is just, I mean, a, is a is a stone cold home run from that perspective. I mean, really a a jewel in the crown. I think of uh, not a perfect piece of work by any means, but but really a you know the jewel in the crown of uh, of of recent uh, multilateral diplomacy. Right, and it builds on essentially the last three presidencies um, having worked through this uh, between H.W. Um, Bush starting to do some work on climate change and President Clinton leaving the Kyoto Treaty uh, for President Bush to walk away from and then towards the end of his presidency change his mind on all of those things and start imposing some limits on things. Uh, obviously, all, all of this environmental claptrap began under none other than Richard Nixon, so that's just a nice thing to keep in the back of your head at all times. Um, <laughs> But one part of the uh, Paris Accord, that uh, Paris Agreement, and Trump pulling out of it, um, that I found particularly interesting—not pulling out of it in the way Chris Christie talks about birth control, but uh, pulling out in in effect of taking the United States out of the agreement—is that it does, he can't stop the United States' participation until the day after Election Day, 2020. I'm not sure who on John Kerry's staff was that clever to put that little tidbit into the accord itself, that it's November 8th, 9th, whatever it is, 2020, before they can do anything. But this just points back to one of the primary things about Donald Trump, that he is just an absolute con man, a carnival barker. Um, he pulls out, he said he's going to pull out of the Iran deal. He doesn't because he walks into office and finds out, hey, if we pull out of this, basically we're going to be, we'll be at war at some point in the near future. He says he's going to label China a currency manipulator on day one. He didn't do that either because he realized that would be a really bad idea for everybody. Uh, certain one-issue voters, they were very excited about the idea that he was going to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on day one. Just yesterday, he signed the waiver ensuring that it will be going nowhere, at least for the next six months. So he really only does these sorts of, he only fulfills the insane campaign rhetoric and campaign promises that he made on things that he can have no effect on and that will not impact him in one way whatsoever. And only the rubes who really believed him are people who are going to believe that anything's going to be coming from this. Sure. And, I, and that's who he's, and that's, that's who he's talking to is his, is his base on this thing. I mean, there are there is very little constituency actually for pulling out of the uh, for pulling out of the Paris Accord, uh, but but that constituency is wholly behind Trump. It is his base, and it tends to view the Paris Accord uh, not as I mean it's not this is as a I was a kind of anti-American conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I mean these are you know these are not uh, you know even people who have objections to the idea to you know to the details of the you know the accord or what it means. Uh, I mean, these are people who sort of think of climate change as a genuine hoax and believe that this thing is a conspiracy to do down Americans. Uh, and that's that's the constituency that he is that he is struggling to uh, pulling pulling us out of uh, out of Paris. Yeah. And there's kind of two parts to that. On the one hand, you have people who genuinely believe it is a hoax and there's a conspiracy theory. You know, it's a you know hoax put, uh, put on us by the Chinese, I think, was what his tweet said, you know, paraphrasing there. Uh, but it all—it also goes back to another course that core kind of constituency of Republicans is the ongoing biggest lie politicians tell voters, and that's that coal's coming back, or that manufacturing yes. jobs are coming back. They're not coming back, and they're not not coming back because of the Paris Accord or environmental regulations. Production in this country has never been higher. Yes, this is these are they're big systemic factors that are driving that have driven down employment in coal. Uh, and that have driven down employment in certain types of manufacturing, uh, and and the answer for for both is not regulation, but it's primarily roboticization. I mean, automation is is the thing that has really with manufacturing. Obviously, there was offshoring, uh, and then automation. That tends to be the way that that goes with with manufacturing. In the case of extraction with coal, uh, I mean, this is what we are seeing is you know essentially a a, a strictly uh, mathematical result that coal became it was easy to the extent that it can be automated. It has been. Uh, and it is just not a it's not a cost efficient way of der- of deriving energy or making it there are other ways this is what's happening with coal employment primarily right. those, the, that work is still there coal is still being dug but it's being dug by machines right well, and what is really amazing about it is that this is literally capitalism at its finest there was a better solution that being natural gas or hydropower or solar power 
or wind power in some cases, and that displaced coal because coal was too expensive between the cost of getting it out of the ground plus the environmental cost of getting it out of the ground plus the cost of transporting it plus the cost, the back end cost of the fact that it was poisoning the air, which is basically something everybody agreed on. It was a question of what level it was poisoning the air. But, you know, to ask anybody if you want to put your mouth on a muffler and they're going to say no. So that's essentially what coal is, what coal power plants are. And there are ways to, you know, through expensive uh, um, retrofits, you can put in better scrubbers so that less fumes are getting out. And that's all well and good. But it's cheaper for a coal-fired power plant to turn itself over completely to be a natural gas-fired power plant than put in all these scrubbers and other sorts of things. Coal is dying because of the marketplace, which is what you'd think all these conservatives that hoot and holler about Obamacare not being, you know, conflating the markets would actually support. And it's interesting, and I think it is, I think that's right, and it reflects one of the fundamental things about the market and that, and the, and the in this case, the efficient functioning of the market. Uh, and coal was, coal and, and various other extraction industries have actually survived, uh, various other extractive industries have actually survived for decades on, essentially on government support of one way or another. Um, so they, in fact, have been slightly insulated from the market for a lot longer than they probably should have been. Uh, but leaving that to one side, where the market, where the where the market working and moving toward other forms of energy that are less dirty and more efficient and so forth, uh, where the and there's still again we want to emphasize coal is not gone. There's 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 still quite a lot of it, but it's it's being dug by among other things machines. When the market works like that, it leaves out one. It, there there is a cost to that, and the cost of it are. Uh, generations of people who were brought up with the ex- with the expectation that there would be an industry in which they could work and that would support them in a in a lifestyle with which they were familiar. And by that, I don't mean a kind of lifestyle in the sense of like you know acquis- in the sense that you know the sense of acquisition or comfort or whatever, but you know a certain way of life in a certain location. Uh, and and that has been you know the idea of growing up and working in this particular extraction industry and having that as a re- as a reliable uh, source of employment. Has been declining for generations in the areas of America where we where we uh, where we used to dig a significant amount of coal, uh, and and that is in the absence of that. And this is, I think, one of the things that is happening. I think it's one of the reasons that coal have you know have, uh, occupies this strangely central place in the American political narrative, right? Like for what is effectively one of a one of a large basket of places from which we get our energy, coal is almost an obsession. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and certain and certain parts of the, particularly with the American, certain parts of the American right, uh, and and I think it is because it is so emblematic of uh, a place, and a time, and an expectation that you know a, that you that a certain type of person, in this case, a man, probably a white man, could, uh, but leaving that to what, but could grow up and get a maybe a high school degree and get a job where that person would work very hard. And would get would make a living wage for it. And you could raise a family on it, and so on and so forth. Like that was a there was a type of life that was that was, and it was predictable because you knew those jobs were going to be there because the coal, by definition, wasn't going anywhere. When we talked about manufacturing, and we talked about uh, how manufacturing first gets offshores and then is automated, first is offshore and then automated, coal continued for longer because you can't offshore the coal. The coal is the coal is where the coal is, um, and so it, it created a very sort of regular way of life. Um, that in the absence of which those areas have, of course, been hit extremely hard. Uh, and, and so I think that's why coal sort of exercises this, this sort of, you know, me, you know, this kind of mesmerizing effect on certain parts of the American political spectrum. Right. And we will dedicate a uh, show in a few weeks, we think, we're still working out the kinks on it, uh, to really dive into Kentucky um, for a variety of different reasons. Kentucky is a really fascinating state, um, coal just being one factor in that. But uh, this will become a larger, longer conversation um, in the near future. Um, but in the meantime, getting back to uh, Donald Trump and his merry band of soon-to-be-indicted lunatics, um, one thing that we also learned from the Paris Agreement was that the Ivanka-Jared-Gary Cohn nexus is uh, actually as powerless as those of us who thought it was going to be uh, actually is, as opposed to people who blindly thought that, oh my God, there will be a balance to the force in the in the White House. <laughs> but we've learned that... Uh, Clearly, that's not the case because this was something that supposedly, again, supposedly, we really only know what she decides to tweet about. Uh, so something that Ivanka was pushing very hard for. Yeah, this was meant to be her signature issue, um, and you know, along with you know, treating women like human beings uh, has just been 
uh, you know, I mean, it just, it, I mean, has just been completely put to rout. Uh, and the, and, fact, and again, the fact that she tweeted about uh, the start of uh, LGBTQ um, um, Pride Month uh, worries me. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's the next. Yeah, if you sort of look at her pet issues as the next, you know, as the next thing that's going to be on the chopping block, it really, you know, it's it, it might be the best way of reading her particular interests. And I mean, this is not. We, we've I think we've talked about this before. It's been written elsewhere that uh, you know Ivanka is at you know at at best is at best. Uh, you know, an accessory after the fact, and at worst, far more complicit uh, in the in her father's agenda than is than, than certainly she would have us believe. So, uh, but this is so. I'm not suggesting that she was you know behind, that she was in any way instrumental in her father's decision. But clearly, at absolute best, she is a non-factor in his decision making around issues like this. Right. It sounds like she was she or her team, more likely her team, were doing work to uh, um, get uh, CEOs to uh, tell Trump not to drop out, um, which they all did, and they all are continuing to do, <laughs> almost uniformly, uh, including energy company CEOs are all saying that this was a bad idea and that all these companies are going to stick to their plans that they've been putting in place because, hey, guess what? Changing your environmental regulations as a corporation in terms of your usage, uh, your consumption, and your output is really expensive and really important and takes a long time to put in place and plan for. And all these companies have done all that, and they've seen that their companies are actually doing just as well, if not better, after having listened to all, after having followed all these regulations that they initially fought for quite some time. So to think that they're just going to suddenly turn it off is a little bit ludicrous, particularly when any decent CEO can hopefully see that this is the direction the world's going in. And if I were, if I had, you know, if I were the the CEO of a of a private enterprise with a significant stake in this. I would be looking at, you know, the, because again, the Paris Accord is not going anywhere. Like everyone else is going to continue doing it. Uh, there are, you know, cities and, and, and local governments all over the country that are vowing to maintain their commitment to Paris. Uh, so, you know, I'd be looking at this and thinking the Paris Accord is going to be around a lot longer than Donald Trump's presidency, right. uh, you know, potentially significantly longer. Uh, you know, I'm looking at that at that initial date, uh, you know, of the, the, you know, the first day after the election in 2020. And thinking, and this is not me making a prediction, by the way. But if I, but if I'm responsible for a company's expenditure and its projections for over the course of you know five to ten years, you know I'm looking at that first day and thinking, you know, Jesus, man, this guy might have three months. And there's a very real possibility that this that that this edict could last for three months before the next president of the United States puts us right back into this thing again. Right. Uh, so right. I, you know, this there's just there's zero percentage, and 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 whatever happens, then it's almost certain that the next Democratic president will reintroduce this either into Paris or something very like it. So there's just no percentage in abandoning this. Right. And businesses have rightly protested Trump's move, uh, also because you know they employ real scientists who know how to read read reports, and they know that the threat is real, and they follow these scientists and other people's gu- guidance. But more than that, they follow the marketplace's guidance, and the marketplace is pointing them in this direction. Which is why they've already sunk billions of dollars, as I mentioned, into reducing emissions and, more importantly, becoming more energy efficient. Sure, and I mean, again, as you say, this is the direction of the market. I mean, there's a reason that Ford and GM are really um, are are investing heavily in uh, producing, you know, market-ready electric cars, uh, plug-in, you know, plug-ins and such, and why Tesla is now a fifty-six billion dollar company. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is the direction of travel. So once again, you know, our you know our heroic president, you know, swaggers out into the waves and commands them not to roll in. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty good way to put it. Uh, all right, we're gonna we're gonna keep moving uh, because we uh, we already did our uh, interview with Josh and it was great, and we want to get to that in a second. Um, so we, we just don't want to offer a quick update on the election across the pond. Uh, obviously, if you've been listening, you've heard us talk about this a few times because we're really lucky to have Frank. Um, and his ability to elucidate the electoral politics of our British um, dentally challenged cousins. Um, so, Frank, with that, what's going on with Theresa May and the neck-bearded tweed-wearing Jeremy Corbyn? So, <clears throat> there's a there's been some there there, there have been developments, uh, and and then I think there's a key lesson to potentially draw from these. So. Uh, since we, when we last left our intrepid heroes, labor is, we were talking about labor appearing to have closed the gap a little bit. Uh, that, that is, that was not a mirage. Uh, labor is closing the gap with the conservatives. Uh, polls show, polls are, are pretty varied, um, but they uniformly show a strong trend toward labor over the course of the last couple of weeks. Uh, conservative lead is, most polls have it somewhere between three and 10 uh, remember that it was uh, around 20, a little less than 20 when this thing kicked off. 
Uh, this is a, a huge turnaround from what was shaping up to be an absolutely historic defeat for labor when the election was first called. Right. So I'm a little confused because for weeks we've been talking about the death of labor and that this is going to be the opportunity for the conservatives to once and once and for all do away with it, like Batman putting the Joker into uh, into, into Arkham Asylum again. So what happened? So that's that. This is you're you're not the only one who's confused. Uh, this is an interesting thing, and I and I want to emphasize here that. Uh, in the terms of the actual the actual projections of what is going to happen on June 8th, uh, range from a hung parliament, uh, which would be a which would mean that the Tories actually lost seats uh, to very significant Tory gains. Uh, all of those things are possible, and we can get into why that's the case in a minute. Uh, but it, so this is you know this is what we're what we're tracking here is a trend. It's not that labor it's it's not that that labor is is doing significant what's surprising here i want to emphasize is that it's not that labor is doing better with the collapse of the smaller parties that's ukip and the lib dems whom i talked about last time it's the labor's disastrous polling early in the election was the thing that was actually strange that labor would be polling in the in the 30s and the tories in the 40s is is not that odd uh it is just odd that labor was doing so poorly early what is odd what is, the surprise here is how quickly that gap has narrowed and the fact that the conservatives appear to have done this to themselves. Right. So going back to one of our taking ship adages, um, and we've said it many times, and it needs to be said over and over and over again, is that polls are not predictors. So what's actually going to work out here? Yeah, I mean, so it, it, it really does bear repeating. You know, polls aren't predictors. They are measurements taken at a time. Uh, they can and do show. They can and do show trends. Done well, they're incredibly helpful, but they're not a magic crystal ball. So, as I said, projections run from run from a hung parliament to a substantially increased conservative majority. Either of those things could happen, and either of them could happen based on the polling. Now, you could see a lot more Labor voters voting Labor in places that already have Labor MPs, so their national share of the overall vote goes up. Uh, but they win fewer seats. Or we could see places where labor voters turn up and Tory voters don't. I don't want to prognosticate except to say that when you have one party that enjoys a significant lead amongst young voters who are historically not especially reliable uh, voters, that's labor. And one party that has a, a fairly significant lead amongst older voters uh, who are usually very reliable voters, that's the conservatives, uh, you know, you, you would put your money on the on the party that is backed by the old folks. Uh, and that appears to be what's happening now. So I think I would caution against any tendency to say, oh, you know, labor might yet pull this thing out. Uh, but but what is very, very clear here is over the last couple of weeks, more voters have been saying that they're voting labor and at a substantially increased clip. Yeah. And what I find fascinating, and I think there's a lesson to be learned here, I, I think, is that labor rebounded despite essentially running on the same platform. That's a warmed over version of their shepherd's pie 2015 platform. Uh, and they still are led by a guy with low, historically low approval ratings, and that's Jeremy of the neckbeard tweed wearing and lying about why he needs to sit on train floors fame. Exactly. I mean, this. so the odd thing is labor has not changed during the course of this election at all. Uh, rhetorically, they haven't changed. Their platform is basic, is very, very similar to the one they ran in 2015. Uh, Corbyn's approval ratings are are picking up a little bit. Uh, it's not quite clear why he's not doing anything differently. Uh, what a lot of us didn't see coming, and, and, I, and I will absolutely put my hand up to this, uh, when this election was called and I was predicting the, the doom of the Labor Party, what a lot of us didn't see coming was that the Conservative Party would run an election campaign that is, when it, that is ludicrously counterproductive when it's visible at all. Uh, there, I mean, this, and this is one of the challenges that, that bedevil pollsters and political pundits and every other thing is you assume, among other things, when you make a political prediction as an analyst or as a pollster, a basic level of competence that, frankly, is just is, – is, that was just a mistake on, on my part. Uh, the, the Tories have really, really said – if they had set about to give this thing away, I don't know how they could have done it better. Uh, so their, their entire frame for – uh, for the for the for Theresa May's leadership, and they really have made this about a leadership election between uh, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. That's really how they wanted to frame it. Uh, and again, they were looking at the same comparative leadership numbers, and I can see why they made that choice because she was beating his brains out and still enjoys leads, although those two are narrowing. Uh, their frame was, you know, this is a we are offering strong and stable leadership. That's their slugline, and their entire frame of the election. We're offering strong and stable stable leadership, uh, and then they so they you know they came out with that, 
And then they essentially proceeded to hide uh, Theresa May. Uh, she's done very, very few public appearances. Her public appearances have been in front of very small crowds. Uh, there has been, you know, they've been, you know, small visits. And those kind of small intimate things can work. Uh, but and, and the reason they're doing this is Theresa May was uh, once described, described by someone whose opinion I trust as the most boring person in Britain. And she really is painfully dull. She is a, a, a I think... A fairly bright, at least I thought until this election began, a fairly bright systemic thinker about politics, which is to say she had some sense of how to position the conservatives in in rhetoric, so in, in appearance, and in reality that would uh, enable them to draw some voters over from uh, the cons- from uh, from the Labour Party, steal some Labour Party folks, steal certainly steal some UKIP people, uh, make sure those people come over to the conservative side, while at the same time shoring up and maintaining their base. She seemed to be sort of steering them in that direction. And you can do that even if you're not personally uh, a really charismatic politician like, say, Tony Blair. I wonder uh, if there's also an issue of the visuals of her with Trump and just the utter poor regard that most Britons ref, left, right, or center have for Trump, and there's, fear there's, of sort of the more you put her out there, the more you're going to be reminding, reminding people of her holding Trump's small hand as they climbed ramps in the in the White House. It probably doesn't help, uh, you know. I think, and the fact that uh, you know there have been, sta- you know, the other European leaders have felt like they're in a position to criticize Trump more than Theresa May has, because she's she's stuck in a smaller version of the bind that American politics has been stuck mm-hmm. in, right? You've got this very angry, very vocal, very well-played, very, you know, critically located uh, minority that's really angry about the way the last 25 years have gone and feel very strongly about Trump and people like Trump. And then you've got everyone, and then you've got a larger majority of the country that is, and in, in, in Britain's case, it's a much more, it's a much larger majority than is the United States that is frankly just deeply, deeply critical of him. Uh, and so there's, so she's, she is a bit perched on the horns of a dilemma there. I will tell you the one way to handle this thing is uh, if you are positioning your, so, you know, they, you, you do not come out with a strong and stable leadership and then hide your leader. She didn't even go to the debate. Every other leader went to the debate. Uh, the Tories sent a representative. Uh, so, and anyway, so they, so that's one thing. Uh, they took a party when I talked about Theresa May being bright in the sense that she was able to rhetorically talk about the conservative party in a way that made it seem appealing to uh, you know, kind of centrist liberals, maybe uh, you might be able to pull over some some more right leaning labor folks. Uh, you know, think think compassionate conservatism, right? That kind of rhetoric. Right. Uh, you know, we're you know we're for responsibility, but we're for caring for people too. Uh, she was doing that rhetorically really well. So you take your party that's beginning to co-opt some centrist and even center left left positions, as well as having owning the entire right, and then and then release a party platform that reveals you to be the sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was absolutely, I mean, it was bonkers, you know, just, and especially going after old folks. Like that was the part that was really amazing is, you know, you go after your base and say, you, you know, you old codgers are not doing, are not paying your fair share. Now the old folks have stayed with the conservatives, oddly. The people who have left them are their kids. And, and, and I, you know, you can see the function there, right? Like that you can see how that would work. Uh, you know, the old folks themselves may not necessarily like it, but the kids, the idea that like their, their parents are going to have to pay for more of their care, that someone is, you know, that someone is proposing to, to reduce the offer to their parents one iota really, really pisses off middle-aged and younger folks. Um, so I think that may be the, so that was a mistake. And then having done that, and again, that, that was true throughout, that was true in a number of places, the conservative party platform that having, having talked a good game of compassionate conservatism, they then produced this draconian document. Uh, which is also at odds with the one that they won the 2010 election on. Hmm. Who um, else does that remind us of? Yeah, indeed. Uh, but then having produced this draconian document, reversing position on some of that within a couple of days. So to sum up, you are, you know, you're, you are strong and stable leadership. You're strong except when you're hiding. Uh, you are for the people except when you're taxing uh, the uh, except when you're you know t- you know t- taxing the poor and the old to feed the rich, uh, and you are stable except when you're directly contradicting yourself uh, within a period of 24 or 48 hours. Uh, this people is how you lose elections. Yeah, uh, that is how you lose elections. And with that, uh, we're going to turn to our uh, good friend and guest uh, Josh Levin and talk about how you can win elections. Stick with us. Mm-hmm. 
All right, we're joined today uh, by our good friend Josh Levin. Uh, we introduced him at the top here, uh, and Josh is, as you can probably tell from the bio that we gave, uh, truly a political professional's professional, and we wanted to take the opportunity to ask him uh, essentially about the state of uh, progressive politics, uh, give us a sense of where we are, give us a sense of where things are going. Uh, so, Josh, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's talk a little bit about, if we're starting with progressive politics right now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the special elections. Uh, we've had a couple that have already happened uh, and uh, another one in Georgia that's upcoming. So can you give us your sense, again, as someone who's managed congressional campaigns, has been part of progressive politics for a long time, uh, what's your read on how the, spe- on how the special elections have gone uh, and, the one that's, and, uh, and anything we can learn from the one that's coming up as well? Sure. I think when you look at places like the Montana at-large seat and the 4th District in Kansas, there are some places that are just too red to win. Uh, Patrick Ruffini, a good Republican commentator and uh, operative uh, who you should follow on Twitter, uh, pointed out a couple of days ago, there are places where Republicans get 70% of the vote. And even in a wave election, even under the conditions that we see now, that may just not be something that you can overcome, especially in places where you don't have a lot of democratic infrastructure, as is the case in both of those, uh, and especially when you have candidates who may or may not uh, pass the the sort of smell test for the electorate. Is this someone I could really see representing me in Congress? Is this someone I would feel comfortable having represent me in Congress, regardless of their political point of view or, or ideology? So... What do you would you say that that was the so uh, would you say that that's that applies in Georgia as well? So we've I mean uh, you know how does how does the candidate versus the kind of structural politics that break down in what we saw in Montana versus what we're seeing in Georgia? I think Georgia has the the chance to be the exception there, or or maybe more of a bellwether for what to expect in a national election coming up next year. Uh, but I think there are a lot of things to keep in mind when it comes to Georgia. Uh, this is a place that has been absolutely saturated in this election now for going on, what, two, three months. Uh, the candidates have just blanket TV ads up. There are, yeah, I can only imagine how much mail is going around from both the candidate campaigns and the independent expenditures and the super PACs. Uh, from everything we've heard, the Ossoff campaign uh, has a pretty good team. They're running a pretty smart campaign. They're focusing on the policy issues that actually matter to the people in that district. But the question is, uh, you know, this is a fast-changing district. This is an area outside of Atlanta uh, where certainly it's not as red as Montana or, or you know, south, south, southern and southwestern Kansas are. Uh, but we don't really know how much the demographic change will affect turnout. We don't know what the composition of the electorate is going to be. Certainly, we've heard good things. We think that uh, the Ossoff team is doing the right job of organizing and really focusing on getting out Democratic voters. But we also know that the Republicans are doing the same thing. And so what I think is that this is our, our best chance of the three, uh, pretty obviously. Uh, but it it may not be enough even then. And then the question will be, does that mean that there really isn't as big a wave as people think there is? Or does it mean that when the Republicans have a single target that they can focus on at once and bring all of the resources of the party to bear, um, that that's enough to hold us off? Uh, and I think that it's going to be very difficult to to tell what that answer is. And I think that these things play really differently when it's a single race that the entire party structure can focus on versus a couple hundred races around the country where the resources, the talent, and the time are being split across a bunch of different targets. You know, I checked the, uh, you know, you mentioned that we've been watching the Georgia race play out for the last two or three months. I actually went back to check in because that didn't seem quite right to me. And it's certain, and it's, and I, and I think that my, or by sort of our listeners will probably understand this when I say that it feels like that race began sometime in about 2015 and has been carrying on ever since <laughs> that it, we have in fact been running that the Georgia special election has been in fact been running for more for, for longer than the actual presidential election that caused it began. It's some kind of weird space time loop that's happening in Georgia right now. Well, and if you think we feel like that, imagine what it feels like if you live in the uh, in the Atlanta suburbs and uh, <laughs> you have 
multiple TV ads at every commercial break. Uh, you have uh, multiple pieces of mail in your box every day, and somebody from some organization is knocking on your door every couple of hours trying to figure out where you're going to vote and uh, how they can motivate you in the direction that they want. So what we're going to have is this kind of multi-generational economic shock that will occur when the special election ends and people are like, you know, my father worked for the special election. My grandfather worked for the special election. <laughs> now the special election is over. What am I supposed to do? Well, I can imagine that the TV stations are going to be throwing some really nice parties with the uh, extra ad dollars that they got. But uh, <laughs> driving a solid gold cat. I mean, the, the only the only real comparison is a, a Iowa caucus or a New Hampshire primary. I mean, it, it really does appear to be on that scale, if not more so. Uh, the Ossoff campaign has had, what, something over $7 million to spend? Um, and that's just as the campaign in a expensive but not hyper-expensive media market. And, uh, you know, that's only one campaign. And, and, again, not taking into account the super PACs and, and independent expenditures. Hey, I think I saw something like 35 to $40 million will be the final price tag all in every one Super PAC, special, you know, everyone, that's that's going to be the total for this thing at the end. And that's a good total for a statewide election in Georgia, let alone a single yeah, congressional oh, district. Absolutely. So. It's bonkers for a congressional race. But Josh, you raised one point I want to go back to, and it was uh, that Ossoff is really focused on the issues to the district less than kind of the national trends of Trump is a buffoon and we need to do everything we can to get in his way. Um, and that's something that Frank and I have talked a little bit about in terms of kind of the overall strategy that, that candidates need to take is sort of like the Pelosi, we need to run national races, or the Rahm, Rahm Emanuel style, we need, we need to run 435 district races about the district, find candidates that match kind of the demographics of that district as opposed to being ideological clones of, you know, the Democratic Ubermensch or something that we just run across the country. Um, do you see that? What do you see playing out in 2018 in terms of some of the candidates that are declaring and some of the you know, early at least talk and, and thinking going on in um, strategist circles. You know, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic um, from what I've seen on the recruiting front and what I'm hearing about the approach that candidates are taking across the country. I think that uh, in Georgia, but also in um, places like the Illinois Sixth, where uh, Peter Roskam is a Republican up for re-election, and there are a couple of different Democratic candidates getting ready to challenge him. We're seeing a real focus on healthcare, on the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, um, and, and the Republican uh, efforts to undermine those and, and replace them. And you know that Illinois race, we've got two separate uh, cancer survivors, two women running for that seat on the Democratic side, who have real personal stories to tell about uh, what the impact of, of repealing healthcare reform would be, uh, and and what a replacement uh, that presumably Roskam would vote for um, would look like. And so I, I think that's maybe a middle ground um, from what you were describing there, Ellie. I mm -hmm. think that's. You know, applying a national issue in a local context, uh, but you know, my sense is that outside of, uh, uh, pardon us here, our New York and D.C. Uh, uh, corridors, uh, things like Russia are not going to tip the balance in a congressional race in the same way. Uh, maybe it would in a race with uh, Devin Nunes uh, or some of the folks who are directly involved in the investigations or directly involved in obstructing the investigations, as the case may be. But uh, I, I really do think that local elections, including congressional elections, including Senate elections, uh, really get decided by uh, what you're putting in front of people and how much the candidate is credible on those issues. Right. Right. So in taking that, you know, what are you kind of thinking is the outlook for, um, well, we can kind of skip 2017 because, you know, there's some special elections. There's the governor race in Jersey, which a Democrat will probably likely win just because Chris Christie is such a fucking disaster and needs to be put out to pasture as soon as possible. Um, but talking about 2018, thinking all the way ahead to 2020, which our, apparently our former vice president is thinking about, um, where, do you think, where do you see things shaking out? Well, I, I think looking ahead to next year, um, this is where some of our friends in the uh, in the research business really come in, uh, tracking all of the votes that get taken 
really digging in to the bills that are voted on so that we understand what's in them, the provisions, and how to use those provisions in an election. Um, and then turning to our friends in the polling business um, and public opinion business, figuring out uh, how to take those issues and make them salient to voters. Um, you know, it's one thing to say that they're going to take your health care away. It's another one to put that into a story um, or a message that works. Um, you know, Charlie Cook this week had an article about how loathing Trump isn't enough. And in yeah. fact, uh, what he was saying is that Democrats, um, if they if they don't find their way, risk being sort of taken over from within in the same way that the Tea Party took over the Republican Party after 2010. Uh, and so... But we're so good at loathing Trump. <laughs> we are very good. Uh, we, we are getting natural resource. Sorry, we are getting so much practice at it too. But uh, you know, I, I think this is where, and, and you know, pardon my uh, sucking up to my hosts a little bit here uh, comes in. But this is where the idea that message matters so much. Figuring out how to make your points, figuring out how to appeal to people um, is just so, so important. And I think that's where candidates getting out um, in public, either holding their own uh, town hall meetings uh, when the incumbents won't do it, or making sure that they are getting outside of their progressive and liberal bubbles and talking to the people who are, uh, if anything, even more uh, fed up with politics now than they were a year or two ago, which I don't know any of us would have believed was possible. Uh, but getting out and talking to folks and figuring out how they are thinking about things and then starting to figure out how to translate that um, into campaign messages. You know, focus groups are, are tremendously important here. I think there are a lot of new online instruments that are really important here. Uh, you know, the polling and public opinion industry is is struggling right now to figure out how they can uh, how they can come back from a cycle when they largely missed it, figuring out how they can take their samples and talk to the people that they need to talk to to get a good sense of where the electorate's going to be, um, and how to integrate uh, traditional you know telephone polls with things like uh, you know the good old Columbus dispatch and their mail-in poll that they do uh, to great uh, uh, to great trumpets uh, at the end of every two years uh, going into November uh, and, and all the other tools that are out there so that we can really get a beat on this. Yeah. So you mentioned that you mentioned that hating Trump isn't enough. And, and, and of course, that was incredibly or loathing Trump isn't enough. And that's incredibly disappointing because, again, it's, it's what we're best at. Uh, but, you know, so but fair enough. Uh, let's let's talk. There's a lot of anger and a lot of uh, a lot of frustration out there. Let's talk about and you sort of you got into this some, but I want to drill down into this a little bit. Uh, let's talk about how you turn that anger, how the progressive how progressive politics turns uh, that anger, that energy into votes from a kind of organizational perspective like how do you organize around this this impetus of you got some people that that loathe trump that's gonna be their primary focal point how do you take that and turn it into something that's useful sure well i think one thing that we're seeing from all these special elections is that there is a real hunger out there to do something and mm -hmm. so that's how you get a john ossoff with a seven plus million dollar budget or uh the montana election where there was a late surge of money, and I think the Democrat ended up over $5 million in total contributions. But the financial support isn't enough. And you know, there's a limited amount of impact that uh, Democrats, progressives, liberals can have on places where they don't live. And so I think that we're seeing a couple of things. We're seeing, uh, we're, we're sort of reliving something that I thought was really interesting after the 2004 election, there was sort of this Cambrian explosion of new progressive groups. And we're seeing the same thing now. There are lots of new organizations. Uh, some of them are nonprofits. Some of them are businesses. Uh, you know, a few that I've seen that look really interesting are groups like Run for Something, um, the Campaign Greenhouse, which is focused on very local elections, Swing Left, which is focused on congressionals. Um, and I think that the smartest groups are uh, doing some things that uh, I think we've all sort of known have been important for a long time and are, are, have been trying to figure out how to do, which is that they're building in the districts and the places that could swing back. Um, even the DCCC uh, put people on the ground in about a dozen 
districts around the country where Clinton beat Trump, but there's a Republican member of Congress, uh, to start organizing people in those places. And I think one of the one of the constant questions we have uh, as political professionals is how do we make use of the wealth of talent that's out there? How do we find a better way to keep people employed between elections, make working on elections and politics a more viable career path? And how do we get the talent out there where it's needed? And I think that all those organizations and even the DCCC uh, are starting to put some of those folks in places where they can be helpful, where they can work with the activists on the ground, support those folks, help build those networks, um, and uh, you know have a base ready so that when we have candidates and when we have messages that we think can work, we have a way to get those out and we have a credible network to spread those in the places where the people are actually voting, um, not just in our, you know, in our reliably progressive communities and amongst ourselves. So that's the kind of ground level, <clears throat> locally focused, or at least sort of infrastructure, local infrastructure and organizing focused uh, approach. There's also the kind of overarching uh, infrastructure that the progressive space needs in order to be able to, to do their planning, to be able to plan out their campaigns, figure out where some of these uh, emerging swing districts are. Uh, that's all, much of that is shaped and driven by polling and modeling and data. Uh, all of those are, those are, you know, polling's been around a long time. Modeling and data are somewhat newer. All of them are in a bit of struggling a little bit right now. They've had, a, as you mentioned earlier, they've had a, a couple of rough cycles. Uh, can you tell tell us a little bit about your sense of where polling, modeling, and and the kind of that the kind of analytics approach to uh, to politics is right now? Sure, I think that the data that's available is as good as it's ever been, um, and there's been a, a real uh, march of progress on the front of knowing who's voting and knowing things about those voters in ways that may or may not be actionable. Uh, but I think one of the challenges is that we actually have too much data now. And that there is a tendency um, within the business um, of looking at that data and the models that come from it and thinking that it is uh, a, a set of more definitive answers than it actually may be. Um, we can have a really good sense of which voters we want to talk to. Uh, but as I was saying earlier, if we don't have the right messages to appeal to them, um, we're only going to be driving them further undecided or in some cases away from us. If you go talk to, uh, you know, those suburban uh, soccer moms, uh, to use an example from 2004, uh, but you're talking to them about the Russia issue, uh, that's just not relevant to them. But if you talk to them about education, uh, the things that Betsy DeVos is doing um, at the Department of Education and what that's going to mean for special needs kids, what it's going to mean for getting their kids uh, to a pathway, affordable pathway to college, uh, what have you, then you're starting to maybe move in the right direction. Um, and so, you know, I think even the very best data people that we have out there, um, folks like my old friend and colleague, John Hagner, uh, who's been the targeting director at the DTRIP and the DS um, and, and is now a partner at, at Clarity Campaign Labs, uh, you know, they will tell you um, data and modeling and targeting can only do so much. Uh, it can make our efforts more effective. It can m help us use our resources better. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that I've been preaching now for a couple of cycles to the campaigns that I work with is, um, that's relatively easy and straightforward. Um, that is a mechanical process. It takes some money. It takes a little bit of time, and you can have a good idea of who you should be talking to. But the process of developing and identifying messages um, takes more. It requires, frankly, more skill uh, and sometimes more iterations. And I think we really need to be pushing hard on our campaigns that, frankly, even the good staff we have and even the, the candidates with the best grounding in their communities may not know how to talk to the voters that we need to bring it over to our side. Uh, you know, there was, there was, and I think still is a lot of, uh, discussion over, well, do we need to win back white working class voters? Um, if we do that, do we risk alienating a democratic base? Um, yeah, I, 
you know, to, to steal something from the, uh, from the baseball community. Um, I like both beer and tacos. I think we need to be doing both. I think we need to have a sense of, uh, who is present in the districts that we are targeting, uh, figure out which ones of, which of those folks are open to hearing the messages that we have from the candidates that we have, uh, and then use the data to help us help guide us where to go. Uh, but then, uh, really make a point of not neglecting uh, our, our base communities. You know, African American women are, as a group, the most likely set of voters uh, out there. Uh, they turn out at a rate far beyond anybody else. But uh, if we don't have candidates and messages that appeal to them, small slips uh, in turnout from from those communities can really hurt. Uh, and you know, we've been looking at for what is it, 14 or 15 years now, this demographic trend of voters who should be friendly to Democrats. If we are not out there uh, making the case to younger voters, to Latino voters, to African-American voters, to educated professionals of why they should trust us, and if we don't have credibility, uh, none of that's going to matter. Yeah, you made a really good point right there, sir. I want to stick with this just for one, just to, to emphasize something you just said, because I think that's really sharp. Uh, you know, if you look at the races, the presidential races, at least the Democrats have lost in in the last 16 years, so 2020, 2024, and uh, 2016. You said, you know, if you don't have the right messengers to communicate to some of the the important constituencies, small slips. Those were all losses made up of small slips. None of those none of those presidential losses for Democrats were big losses. 2000, 2004, 2016. They were all losses based on small slips. So, well, a lot of this, what we're talking about, may not be, you know, big world moving stuff. It's the kind of thing that victory or defeat is made out of. I mean, I, you know, I I spent the last six weeks or so of the election helping do GOTV in Youngstown, Ohio, um, and Mahoning County went for Barack Obama by something like twenty four percent, I think it was, uh, in twenty twelve. In twenty sixteen, it went for Hillary Clinton by about four uh, percent. You know, if you're going to have a twenty point drop in what should be a Democratic stronghold, you're going to have a damn hard time winning a state like Ohio. Um, and so in a place like Mahoning County, um, we did need better ways to appeal to white working class voters, but we also needed better ways to appeal to the African-American population there. Um, you know, our performance slipped in both of those areas. Now, what I saw on the ground and what the numbers appear to have confirmed later is that our early vote numbers there were quite good. Uh, our early vote numbers in 2016 were just short of what they had been in 2012. And so if things had borne out in Mahoning County in Youngstown, Ohio, if Election Day voting had looked like early voting, uh, we'd all be telling a very different story. Uh, and frankly, I don't think we'd have a podcast like this one. Uh, but so, so it's an ill wind. I think we right. can all agree. It's an <laughs> exactly, exactly. The, the, the loss in 2016 uh, gave us this opportunity to be here today. But... Uh, what we saw there was a slip on every front. And you know, this is why I think the the attempts to put a single cause to the Clinton loss to the overall Democratic underperformance in 2016 is so impossible to do. Um, there were voters who did not turn out. There were voters who voted the other way. Um, and you know, to some degree, we just blew it on all fronts. Uh, and And that's, again, where message and, uh, frankly, uh, defining your candidate matter a lot. Yeah, so speaking of that and kind of taking this more towards sort of the tactical direction, I mean, I gave the analogy to somebody recently I, uh, who uh, is single still and spends a lot of time on dating apps, and I said, you know, that's kind of the data world. That's the algorithm is matching you up with somebody that they think is uh, potentially a good fit for you. That's all well and good, but if you don't know how to go talk to that person, or if you are so socially inept that you're not going to be able to convince them to go out with you again, or you know whatever your whatever your app is suggesting that the end goal is, depending if it's match or whatever the other ones are, um, it's not particularly helpful. So I think like one of the big questions that I think that gets a little bit lost in terms of the data versus messaging when it has to be both is what is that step? How do you make those connections? And that that's a you know Frank and I've talked about it. That's now that's the tac- that's the tactic world. That's you know the digital advertising and radio and TV and mail and door to and GOTV. Where do you kind of see things playing out um, 
um, as you're seeing, maybe the way it evolved already from 2016 into uh, the Montana and Georgia races now, or how it may evolve into 2018 and 2020. I, I love that analogy, uh, and I may steal it By in all the means. future. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, Melissa Ryan, who's a, a digital strategist, um, is doing really interesting work. She's got a, a newsletter called Control Alt Right Delete, um, where she is <laughs> analyzing the work um, of uh, of the frog brigades, as she calls them, um, and and what they do now, as well as what they did in 2016. Um, and so, you know, I think that tactically. Um, not to duck the question, you need to know uh, what's going to work where you are trying to win votes. Right. Um, you know the 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 training classes that I went to through Emily's List and the DCCC. You know they always included an example of a congressional district in New Jersey where broadcast TV was just prohibitively expensive, and so you had to figure out how to do a race without being able to be up on TV. Uh, but they also included examples where. Uh, you know, where broadcast was dirt cheap and it was far and away the best method of getting your, um, your message out. So again, I think this is where, uh, modeling and, and data can help you figure out, um, which voters, uh, you need to be addressing and then figure out, um, based on who those voters are, what the best ways to get to them is or, or are, are to get to those folks. Um, you know, I think that uh, broadcast media, TV, radio, cable ads, they still play a role. Um, your most reliable voters um, outside of those African-American women I was talking about earlier tend to be older, and those tend to be the folks who are still watching TV and still watching, uh, still listening to the radio. Um, and there is nothing, still nothing, um, like TV ads to help begin a conversation in an area. Uh, you're not going to get the same addressability that you're used to, uh, but having a 30-second spot that begins a conversation that gets people talking um, is invaluable and really enables, I think, everything else if it's something that's open to you. Um, direct mail, I think, is also still really important because in any election, you have a really good idea of who about 60% of the voters are going to be, and maybe more. Um, they're the folks who vote every election or almost every election. Those are the folks who, uh, you know where they live, they don't move around a lot, uh, and some of them are persuadable, some of them are turnout targets, uh, and direct mail is still a really effective way of getting to those folks. But then you also have to layer in digital, you have to layer in phones, and in a place like this Georgia special, um, that's where in a saturation environment and in an environment where you have, uh, so many resources, um, you can really do a presidential primary strength field operation. Um, you can really do a field operation that can effectively address really large portions of the electorate, uh, just because you have the resources available to do it. Now, Georgia is on a relatively short time scale, even if it did begin in 2015. But uh, I think that uh, if you can hire enough organizers, especially coming off of a presidential campaign where there are literally hundreds of people uh, who are doing this work and are ready to go do it in other places, hire them up, go start building the networks locally, um, start getting your candidate in front of people and groups that uh, are, are going to be listening, and, and that's really important. Um, so you know, circling back, I think you have to. I, I think any communications plan today needs to needs to be integrated across multiple mediums. Um, there is no such thing now as just going on television as your only tactic. Um, outside of very local elections with very defined electorates, like a city council race uh, or something like that, uh, direct mail alone won't do the job. Um, and so I think you know one of the biggest challenges for every manager, for every consultant, is to figure out. Uh, what the most effective way of spending your money is going to be. Um, and it's always made harder, of course, because you don't necessarily know how much money you're going to have. Indeed. Uh, so with that, we're going to carry on into uh, the closing segment of our interview. Uh, this is our, uh, five, our five minute or less lightning round, uh, which is uh, not about politics, but it's about all the other things that make life worth living. Uh, so uh, it's, it's uh, four questions. Uh, Ellie, starting with you. 
So uh, we ask this of everybody. These are the same questions we ask of everybody, that, like Frank just mentioned. So the first one is, what's the best book, TV show, movie you've read or seen lately? You know, one of each or just one in general? Oh, boy. Uh, I, I've been avoiding TV mostly, uh, although Saturday Night Live was awfully good this season. Um, and Samantha Bee's uh, show uh, is also fantastic and, and highly recommended. Um, in some ways, she is uh, exactly where John Oliver was a couple of years ago, um, and, and I highly recommend her. Um, in terms of books, um, I, I just picked up a copy of The Dead Hand talking about uh, the, the, the infrastructure that behind our nuclear deterrent and uh, some of the stories about how that has and hasn't worked uh, over the course of the decades. Um, I reserved that at the library about four months ago, and uh, finally, finally my name came up, so I picked it up uh, a couple of days ago, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but I'm also uh, reading through uh, Tressie McMillan Cotton's uh, Lower Ed, talking about uh, sticking to the nonfiction here, talking about how for-profit colleges and universities and trade schools um, have changed the education market and how credentialing um, within the employment market has become increasingly important. And I think that uh, the the questions about how capitalism and business are taking over education and more and more de- defining um, the employment market are, are really fascinating right now, and, and uh, she's another person who's fantastic to follow on Twitter uh, and, and to uh, listen to when she gets a platform to speak. So as you're reading The Dead Hand and managing to not sleep at night or to calm your nerves, this leads into question number two. What's your favorite alcoholic or not beverage? Uh, I, I am very lucky. I just came back from uh, a weekend in New England, and I was gifted a four-pack of Hetty Topper. Uh, a remarkable uh, IPA from a brewery called The Alchemist uh, in in Vermont, and uh, I am savoring those. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, in the Trump era, uh, lots of people are obviously interested in doing something. Uh, what's one organization you're supporting and why? Oh, I think uh, the work that the folks at Run for Something uh, have been doing is really impressive the way that they are helping people who are ready to put their names forward um, and connecting them with resources and guidance um, I think is really important um, but then I think that some of the longer standing groups out there as well like the ACLU um, like Planned Parenthood are also incredibly important to support right now um, as they throw up uh, legal roadblocks to some of the things that the Trump administration is trying to do. And uh, hopefully, uh, and and particularly I'm hopeful about the ACLU, uh, get involved uh, going forward into the election year in helping to define the issue environment. Absolutely. And Josh, where can people uh, follow you on social media? You know, I I tend to tweet about things like baseball and cooking and technology at ByJSL. Uh, that's BYJSL on Twitter. Uh, I don't do a ton of political commenting there, um, but uh, I am one of those folks. <laughs> I'm one of those folks who's more of a consumer of Twitter than uh, than a producer. There, uh, you're you're more likely to see me talking about the deep dish pizza I made um, or uh, the White Sox prospects than uh, than political affairs. But I'm I'm constantly reading and taking things in there. All right, that does it, Josh. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're, I will have to have you on again um, because you are one of our sage friends who has smart things to say and says it well. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me and uh, looking forward to hearing it. All right, that's our show for the week. Thank you, Josh, for joining us, as always. Thank you, Frank. Thank you all for joining us for this uh, great episode this time around. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in patriarchal. And uh, please do let us know if you'd be interested in t-shirts so we can get an idea if we should go ahead and order those or not. Um, With that, Frank, where are we headed this week? 
This week we take ship to Austin, Texas, where we will not attend a special screening of the new movie Wonder Woman at the Alamo Drafthouse. The Alamo Drafthouse is a movie theater in Austin, which recently announced several women's-only showings of the new movie Wonder Woman. Uh, Because women doing anything, uh, even going to the movies together, is utterly intolerable to a certain type of in a mewling imbecile, let's call them. Uh, The Alamo Drafthouse has come in for a certain amount of criticism from these various bellowing dullards, uh, and some of those people have extended their ire toward the city of Austin itself. Uh, One of them went so far as to write to the mayor, uh, uh, condemning the uh, women's only showings and generally deriding uh, what he called the second-rate gender uh, and somehow uh, attacking Austin as part of that. Uh, Mayor Adler responded to this remarkable piece of prose. Uh, We'll post Adler's response on our Twitter account. Uh, Please check it out, uh, where you can read the whole thing. But here is a taste of how uh, Mayor Adler responded to this person who wrote condemning uh, condemning his city for having a women's-only screening of a movie. Uh, Mayor Adler's response, he writes... I am writing to alert you that your email account has been hacked by an unfortunate and unusually hostile individual. You and I are serious men of substance with little time for the delicate sensitivities displayed by the pitiful creature who maligned your good name and sterling character by writing that abysmal email. Uh, You want to read the whole thing. It's absolutely wonderful. So this week, uh, we're headed to Austin, where women will watch a movie. Uh, We will not. And somehow, someway, by some miracle, everything will be okay with that. Uh, And where we can raise a glass to the mayor and the wreckage he makes of uh, errant email correspondence. So friends, we take ship now for Austin, Texas. Hook'em. Take care, everybody.